This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's <laughs> called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Welcome to Bang, I'm Melody Thomas and this is episode 3, Netflix and Chill. Today we explore love and lust for Kiwis in their late teens and 20s. Plus, respect and responsibility educator Eleanor Butterworth shares tips for ethical sex. Even if they're not the love of our life, we're still going to treat that person as precious as opposed to disposable. We hear a brand new poem from Hera Lindsay Bird. And guest reviewer Laura Borrowdale introduces us to a website aimed at addressing this imbalance. We can talk about masturbation all the time, but generally it's something you do if you've got a penis in your hand. As always, the discussions you're about to hear are of a frank nature, and in this episode there are also a couple of swear words. So maybe listen alone if there are sensitive ears around. Before we get into dating and hooking up now, how did people meet before cell phones got involved? I commandeered a group of 70-somethings touring innocently through Radio New Zealand's halls. Well, I, I met my wife at a function that was held in a wool shed on a farm. I was 22. Did you move fairly quickly to marriage? About five months. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty quick, by today's standards, that is. Yes. That was, you know, in the, in the early 60s. We met at a nurse's tea dance and it was, you know, Lincoln students and engineering students and it was quite a, a happening thing. And that's where a lot of people met, you know, their, their future partners. It was a ways and means of meeting, you know, socially and having fun. Of course, six o'clock closing with no bars open in the evening. Of course. And girls wouldn't have gone there anyway. Nice girls like us wouldn't have gone there. I also belonged to the Hapvalley Tramping Club and uh, the Women's Weekly did a survey after one of the um, census where there was a whole bunch of unmarried women there was a whole bunch of unmarried men and they asked the pundits around New Zealand um, uh, way, ways the girls could track down these uh, elusive males and so they came out with a summary and then the last one was girls of all else fails join a tramping club. <laughs> While I was overseas I think there was about 11 weddings within my own Hapvalley Tramping Club. If you look to the media, there's a lot of discussion around what people are calling hookup culture, which is young people's propensity to engage in casual physical relationships outside of marriage. Was that the kind of thing that was done in your no, day? No, I mean, um, you had a date, you fell in love, and you got married. And then you had children. That was the era that it was in. Sorry to creep in behind you, but yes. A lot of us met our partners pre-contraception, so that was a, a, a quite a big constraint. And challenge, mm, I think. Mm, mm. Getting contraception before we were married was took a lot of courage. Mm. <laughs> a lot of courage. Contraceptives are much more common, and hopefully more and more of the youngsters will use this because... Um, a, you don't want to get pregnant without really wanting it and certainly don't want to pick up any diseases. So hopefully the youngsters, um, OK, they can experience this thing, but please be careful. Valuable advice for the youngsters from that amiable group of old-timers. 
So it's been a while since my last tea dance. And while I reckon probably the odd tramping club romance still happens sometimes, if that's not your thing, how does a single young Kiwi go about meeting someone these days? At bars. When you're drunk. (laughs) I gathered together a group of 20-somethings to talk modern day sex and love, including this character, 23-year-old Brit. Don't trust Tinder, because all the hot ones are really boring. I disagree. Really? (laughs) I've met some really hot guys who have been really interesting, and we're still together. Maybe it's just my profile. (laughs) 26-year-old Melissa is a Tinder pro. She went on, wait for it, 42 dates in 28 days for her blog, 30 Days of Tinder. I mean, some of them were boring, but you can kind of tell it by the conversations that you're having on Tinder that they're going to be boring in real life I get really impatient because it's so hard to try and manage... As soon as I match with them, I want to talk to them and then I want to meet them straight away. Otherwise, I'm going to forget who they are because there's like 150 Johns in there. Uh, I would go by that as well. A lot of ways how you, I tend to like meet people is you'd find them on Tinder and then you'd be like, oh, you're going out tonight. At 19, Dylan is the youngest in the group, as everyone else will go on to remind him. Cool, I'm going to be at this bar. Yeah. Like, if I see you, I see you because you're in that state where you're drunk, you're in that zone, you just want to, like, meet them and just hope for the best. And then if they're really crap, you can, like, sneak into the dark corner of a bar (laughs) away from them. The worst is when the lighting's kind of dull and a little bit flattering. You can't really make out their faces. This is Tegan. He's 24 and identifies as polysexual, meaning he's attracted to more than one gender. And then you stand out of the bar after maybe an hour Mm -hmm. or so of dancing with them, and then you're like, oh, shit, I'm really not attracted to you at all. Yeah, that's happened so many times. And then you have to make an awkward excuse, like, oh, shit, my mum's calling. I've got to go home. (laughs) I have to wash my hair. I've really got to go home now. (laughs) You haven't said anything on Tinder yet. Is Tinder something you've taken part in? Yeah, it is. And Etta, she's 24, queer, and facing her own set of challenges. So I have cerebral palsy, um, and I use a wheelchair, and I guess there's always a little part of you where it's like, okay, do I out myself as disabled and how's that going to impact who responds and how they respond to it? Mm. I mean, my general kind of rule of thumb is like if someone can't deal with your disability, then why would you want to date them anyway? But it's also like you want to present yourself as a full person before you maybe like approach Mm. Not like, hi, I am my disability. Yeah, you know, there are many other ways that I identify and also, like, things that I think are possibly more interesting about me. It's not not all of me. No. Mm. So when you brought up meeting people in real life, where people have met people in real life, is it mostly bars, as you've mentioned, or are there other places to meet people? Um, I met my ex-partner through friends. I feel like that's one of the old-fashioned ways we met yeah. people was friend of the through friend. friends in the workplace. Melissa, you've talked about the in-the-workplace thing being quite a weird concept for you. Yeah. I think you said because there's no hotties at your work. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no hotties at my work, and I think also when I'm at work, I'm at, I'm at work and I'm professional and I wouldn't want to be in a position where people would then judge me for going out with so-and-so. I mean, I think it would be obviously be different for a a case-by-case basis, but I think it's becoming less common. Mm. Yeah, because I feel, I mean, how did, do do you guys know how your parents met? 
<laughs> Go on. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not very romantic. My mum always said, oh, you know, if you're ever going to find a girl, make sure you do it right, not like what your dad did. I was like, what did dad do? We met at a party and we were in the bush for about 15 minutes. I was like, right, yeah, I think he set this bar a little bit low. I think I'll be a bit, a little bit more romantic <laughs> when that comes to happen. Yeah. I left that out, yeah. It's meeting through friends, meeting at work, meeting in the bush. Yeah, <laughs> blind date. That was, yeah, that was one of the most important ones in the bush. For those in our audience that are older or have been in long-term relationships, Tinder is still this fascinating thing. I'm in a long-term relationship, but just the act of swiping is so mm. much fun. It's a game. It's, it even <laughs> says, do you want to keep playing? Yes. Does it? Yeah. So I'm like, it's It's playing. It's a game. I want to play. Yeah. Let's say an alien comes to Earth and says, "What's Tinder?" And you have a minute to explain. Tinder is an online application where you download it to your phone, and you can set up a profile and match with the people in the nearby vicinity, and you can choose up to 250 kilometers. So you can choose to match with people from. Palmerston North or Blenheim, which if you're from Wellington, that's about how far your radius goes. You can choose to adapt your age range. Um, the standard is between 18 and 55 because it turns out no one over those ages or under those ages can go on Tinder. You can't go on Tinder if you're over 55? I was going to say that I think the age... Oh. Age stops at 55 plus. Oh, and right. You can Sorry, if Dad. you're under 18 too. Oh. Can you? Yeah, yeah. So I there's like know. a juvenile Tinder. There's, a, there's oh. a primary Tinder, yeah. He's right. When Tinder first started up, anyone over age 13 could use the app, although they could only match with others under age 18. But Tinder changed the threshold to 18 plus in 2016. Yeah. Well, back in my day. Because I remember as soon as I turned <laughs> 18, I was day. so excited because I was like, ah, oh, I can match with people older than me now. So. <laughs> well, so you were using How Tinder pre-18. Oh, I had it when I was 17. When so, you were 17, like not even being able to go into bars. Like, hey, do you want to come loiter in the car park with me? Or meet in the bushes. <laughs> yeah, do you want to meet in the bushes? <laughs> um, wow, so, okay. So you can choose if you want to match with men, women, or you can choose the option of both, and then you swipe right for somebody that you want to talk to, and you can swipe left. And the person who you swipe left on will never know that you haven't swiped right on them. Um, and then you can just talk to as many people as you like. Yeah. I mean, some people are really, really fussy. Some people have about 12 matches. Some people have thousands. What about apps or websites or other ways that technology aids this that aren't Tinder? Like Bumble? Like, I don't know, yeah, you tell me. Bumble, Grindr, Squirt. Dating. Tell me about Squirt. Squirt sounds Um, sexual? Very much so, like a sex-based dating app. So less about the dating, a lot more about the sex very gay male orientated with um, cruising spots and lots of penis pictures. I know with Cinder that the chat is often quite important, but with Squirt, is it? Squirt is very not so important. It's like, hey, what are you doing? Want to come over? Or in terms of like cruising locations, it was very much like, I'll be here in 10 minutes in this car if you're interested. Is it very much like Grindr where you put... Like your weight and your height. Put your weight and your you, height. Grinder, you, Grinder, you put like. You don't have to, but you can but, set. Yeah. Like, you'd be you like, can I'm set, a twink. I'm a twink. So you can set like your tribes on Grinder. What's a twink? Yeah. Tell a us twink the tribes. What's like, a tribe? Tribes are like, like, kind of like subcultures. So, like, you know, like a twink would be 
I guess what most people would stereotype a like twenty something year old gay guy to be. Um, that kind of very effeminate kind of like small, hairless. small skinny hairless. Did you say hairless? Yeah, hairless. very hairless. Okay. Like feeds from head to toe before he goes to the bar because he knows he's getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then you've got like beers, which are yep. tend no, to be older, beers. bigger, hairier, yep. or otters who are like skinnier, or you know, there's a lot of sub brands and grinder. Uh, so I don't, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this in a way that like I know. I'm yeah, let's go. Okay, dive in. So I imagine that for especially let's thinking like older New Zealanders living in rural parts of New Zealand. Yeah. So I mean, there are many stereotypes, but there's a, probably one stereotype of like young gay guys, maybe twinks. Being, like, fairly slutty? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, can you tell me a bit about that? Well, like, I've always been super out and super comfortable with myself, um, coming from a family, I guess, who's been super accepting. So I've never really felt like I had to hide. But I guess for a lot of young gay guys, you can't just go to a bar and meet someone in provincial New Zealand and all of a sudden you're in a bar with 100, 200 other gay guys. So I guess it's just... The fact that you've had no fish in your ocean <laughs> and now you're in an aquarium full of anything and everything. Anyone else? Was that other people's experiences of 19, 20, 21 in terms of just hooking up and having fun and those kinds of things? No. <laughs> um, my experience, I think, has been quite um, quiet, I guess. I mean, I came out at about 15 or 16, so I knew that about myself. And started going along to things in Auckland, like Rainbow Youth, and sort of exploring it as an identity, but not having the guts to, like, ask people out. I think, too, for younger queer women, there's still an assumption, and even in the queer community, that you might just be going through a phase. Um, And so I remember the first time that I went to um, a Rainbow Youth meeting, being told by one of the other women there that I had to label myself one way or the other you know like that's kind of unfair on other people if you don't label what? if you don't label yourself yeah that's so bizarre that and, is, and really hard yeah, yeah. Like, so I feel, 15 16 is that, yeah. yeah is that still the case now because I feel like in the gay male community like is a lot less labeling yourself now and a lot more fluid I guess. Yeah, I think it's definitely moved. Around the same time, I, I was going to a school that was, like, really accepting of people of a whole lot of different identities, and so that kind of balanced it out. But I did feel that, yeah, as a young disabled woman who was also queer, then you're just not represented in your sexuality education, and so you end up sort of going, oh, sort of like, oh, where where do I fit? Do I fit? With a physical disability anyway, it's also, like, impacts then what kind of sex is enjoyable or or how much energy you have for that kind of thing. You know, it affects how you practically go about it as well as, like, access to to those spaces where you might meet people. And um, some guidance probably would have been, would have been <laughs> really great. nice. Yeah. Um, is anyone here less interested in dating currently and more in hooking up? Just the oh, hookup part of things? I have spent so many years just hooking up with people and I was having the time of my life because I have such an odd relationship with men. 
It's like, I want to have sex with you. I want your dick. But it's everything else that comes with it is so awful. So if you're just hooking up with someone, you don't have to get to know them. And they don't tell you, like, ha ha, like, I just think that woman should stay in the kitchen. And you're like, oh, well, now you've ruined it. <laughs> opened your mouth and you ruined everything. Dylan, yeah. you said yes as well. Is yeah, that, like, do you relate to that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's like <laughs> the hooking up part. It's you, you seem to have a bit more fun and I guess there's a bit of variety. You get to like go around, see what you like. Most of our reasonings for when we go up with the boys, our main boys. reason <laughs> <laughs> Our main reason for when we want to go out is with the chance of like finding someone, sleeping with them, and then coming back the next morning be like, yo, I got with a ten or like, you know, oh, something like that. Yo, see it's this shit <laughs> that you hear and then you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Why? When I was dating, it was totally just like Drunken hookups turning into relationships. That's that was dating. I culture. think that's pretty much still mm, yeah. is. Yeah. But people go on dates now. I've never been on a date in my whole life. Oh babe. No. Oh, come How on. bad is that? It's oh. terrible. They're one night stands that just You're old school like me. Yeah, that yeah. just sort of never leave. And then no. next thing you know, it's like a month later and it's like, Do you live here? Have you moved in with me? Like I've been having worry. the most dreamy <laughs> dates relationship. Just like the whole day has been planned, like from the moment Piss we get up off. to the end what? of the day. We woke up and we had pizza for breakfast at Sal's. Dream. Then we went go-karting and I bet him. And then we went to a pet store to look and pet all the pets in the pet store. And then we went ice skating. And then we went and got our nails done. And then we went and had fish and chips for dinner. Were you and like, then we watched movies. This sounds like... This is a movie. The only time that I've experienced something similar to that was like getting ready to be... A bridesmaid at a wedding. It was amazing. Like it was a, it's a full day event of like activities. Uh huh. I don't get it, and I think it's a lie. It's and I think you've seen lie. it on a movie, and you've come <laughs> here and you've just made it up. You look like you wanted to say something about dating. Have you before. ever taken someone on a dream date like this? And, oh, I have tried. They haven't um, turned out the the greatest. That's why um, I was going to back the point up that alcohol, yes, definitely have high influence because. When you are in town and you like you're intoxicated and you see them, you're like, "Oh, I'm drunk. All good. If they don't like me, then it's because I'm drunk." Wow. And then that's some twisted logic. Well, and then you can be like, "Oh, sorry, I said that to you last night. I was because I was drunk." Oh like, my god! <laughs> How old are you? Nineteen. Yeah, I can. T- yeah, <laughs> that's so something that like exactly what I would have done when I was nineteen. So I'd be like, "Oh my god!" Like accidentally texting, being like, "I." Love you. And then the next day, like, oh, my God, sorry I texted you that. I was so wasted <laughs> last night. Not normally <laughs> such a freak. Yeah. <laughs> I'm normally really cool and chill. <laughs> we don't have much more time, so I'm going to ask one last question because we've been talking about hookup culture. It was a fun thing where people get to seek pleasure, but obviously there are these other sides to things that we need to consider, like safety. So, like, what kinds of conversations should be being had? Always wear a condom on a one-night stand. Yeah. Just oh, I think don't even take the risk. That's why the well, where the consent conversation is so significant. Because I think when you get into situations that are moving from being consensual to non-consensual and are possibly ambivalent, you can go, well, this is moving from pleasurable to not pleasurable, so am I like entitled to change my mind? And I think about like the conversation about consent and not just when is it a yes or no situation but like when is it 
actually taking advantage? You know, if they're drunk and you're not and they're saying yes, is that really still a fair situation? As mm. well as, you know, conversations about protection and contraception. Yeah. That was Tegan, Melissa, Etta, Britt and Dylan. Thank you all so much. For those who met in the days of tea dances or wool shed functions or maybe hooked up at work or with a flatmate, all of these new words, twinks, bears, otters, polysexuals, individuals identifying as non-binary and trans and cisgender, can make it seem like things these days are a whole lot more complicated. And that's what I thought when I first started to dive into it. So I put my concerns to sex advice columnist Dan Savage, and you might be interested in what he had to say. Yeah, I mean, it used to be that everyone was presumed to be straight or default straight, but that wasn't true of everyone. Mm-hmm. So just because you saw somebody that you were attracted to and they were opposite sex didn't mean you were going to get them. Even if they were opposite sex and heterosexual and you were heterosexual, they might not be attracted to you or might not be into the things that you were into. So there never were any guarantees. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we have a more complicated, uh, a, you know, an awareness of more complicated sexual orientations and identities and gender identities. And all of that has to be taken into account. Um, when you're figuring out whether you are desired by the object of your desire. But determining whether you're desired by the object of your desire is something that everyone has always had to do. And it's always been a fraught and difficult process because rejection is hard for whatever reason you're being rejected. The assumption these days is that hookup culture among millennials is rampant and out of control. But actually, a study published recently in the Archives of Sexual Behaviour found that more millennials are abstaining from sex in their 20s than both Gen X and the baby boomers, who won that competition, by the way. But yeah, if we take that group at their word, there are obviously still plenty of young people interested in hooking up and who want to know how to do it safely and respectfully. Eleanor Butterworth has worked with Wellington Rape Crisis and Women's Refuge and is currently the project manager for the new Respect and Responsibility program at NZ Rugby. I got Eleanor into the studio and started by asking her about the stuff Tegan and Dylan touched on, the part that alcohol plays in all of this. People often will say to me, how do you know when someone is too drunk or how do you know when you're too drunk? Think about like the wording of the law which talks about is the person stupefied? And we know the difference when someone is talking and conversing and walking and able to make decisions and do all of those sorts of things and when they're really not in that place. You know, one of the things that I think about in terms of how do we move to a really healthy sexual culture, like part of it is normalising our conversations around sex. Like the more normal it is to have a conversation with someone about do you want to hook up? What does that mean to you? What, what do you like? The more we can do that when we're sober, the better the sex that we'll have will be. And I think that is really hard when you're younger because I know for me now at 37, I have quite a long lead-in between had a drink, oh no, I'm really drunk, whereas when I was younger, I felt like that happened really quickly. Yeah, you're just preloading and then suddenly it hits you, hopefully just as you get past the bouncer. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the group that I spoke with, they'd gone through periods, most of them, where they were just hooking up and most of their relationships were casual. And, yeah. And they did say this is something we want. You know what I think around, say, healthy sexual relationships and kind of sexual empowerment, it's about knowing what's right for you. And for some people, sex exists in this really special kind of sacred space that is part of a marriage or part of a long-term relationship. And for other people, actually, what's right for them is casual but all of those things should be imbued with respect say one night stands and that sort of thing like even if they're not the love of our life we're still going to treat that person as precious as opposed to disposable you know Mm. so I'm with the young people on this since people do it let's talk about how to do it in a way that upholds everyone's mana everyone's dignity after the experience everyone's left whole. So they had a couple of things to say about the practicalities of safety when it came to hooking up and dating. Are there other things that you would say to consider if you want to be safe? So I really like Moira Carmody's um, four-step model for ethical sex. The first one is know yourself. Know what your boundaries are. Know what you're into. Am I making this decision because I've just been dumped and my heart's breaking and I feel like this person will help fill that gap or those sorts of things. So we start by knowing ourselves. Then we know the other person, and this is going to be obviously on a continuum if it's a one-night stand, but what that means is sex is this big umbrella term that encompasses a thousand different things. So my normal might not be the same as my partner's normal, and so do I know what their normal is? Do I know if they're sober enough to be making these decisions? Then the next step is like negotiation and asking, and this is often the one where we fall down because people are in that situation Maybe they have changed their mind. Maybe it's actually just not very good sex and now they feel like they owe the person an orgasm and they have to stay in there. So how do we get better at making it normal that we check in, that we ask, that we're actively really thinking about nonverbal cues? And then the final one, which I think is you know, really relevant, is reflection. So maybe that's something you do as a couple afterwards, like, did you like it? Was it good for you? Would you do it again? But maybe if it's a one-night stand, maybe it's around, how was that for me? Because I think often, if we don't have a great sexual experience, what we do is we stuff it down and think, I just really never want to think about that again. And I think that's part of how we get to a really great place in terms of our sexual relationships, is not being afraid to look at it and go, yeah, I don't think that actually works for me. Like, I need more chemistry with that person. So it's like not being afraid to know who we are. When it comes to especially, I think, that step three about... Negotiation and asking. Yeah, like, that is really hard for people. Yeah. Especially, I'd say, young people who are still, you know... How do you negotiate when you don't even know, like, what cards you have or what you want from the other person's hand? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know, I think quite often when we say consent in the back of our head, we hear, right. But actually consent is the really good communication that happens the whole way through a sexual encounter with another person. And I like thinking about that more like a traffic light. Most of the signals that people give each other are non-verbal. So you have those signals that are quite clear that someone is really into it. you know. And then you have those signals that are quite clear someone's really not into it. And then you have this whole big space in the middle, which are those orange signals. Heavy breathing could be because this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Or it could be like, oh my God, my heart is racing and I feel out of my depth. And I, you know what I think needs to happen there is us getting better 
at the non-verbal ways we negotiate that. So if I feel too embarrassed to say, I'm not sure that you like this, <laughs> then what else can we do? Like, can we actually just take that initiative to go, hmm, the person I'm with was really into it when I was doing this. I've now started doing this and they suddenly don't seem to be as into it. I feel like I can't ask. So why don't you just dial it back? There's a way that I feel the consent conversation often is reacted to like conversations around condoms once were where it's like, but it's so unsexy, like it kills the mood to stop and put a condom on. It kills the mood to be like, are you into this constantly throughout? What do you say to that? Um, Yeah, I hear that a lot. If you are not sure, by asking you're only going to do one of two things. The first one is you'll turn average sex into good sex. And the other thing that you'll do is you'll prevent harm. So like either of those is kind of win-win. Thank you, Eleanor. In a moment, we've had our first bang review filed. Laura Borrowdale is going to talk us through a website that women and lovers of women might want to explore. But first, lucky us, Hera Lindsay Bird stopped by to recite a brand new poem. Jealousy. Anytime someone I am dating ever mentions someone they used to love in a semi-nostalgic or non-cynical way, I immediately want to drive my car headfirst into a swamp full of battery acid, ruining Christmas for everyone. It is so unreasonable to be afraid of so many kind and distant women who have escaped into the future, only occasionally looking back through naturally thick eyelashes. When I think about the possibility that the person I'm currently with has ever been romantically interested in another person ever, I feel a great self-antagonism for being the kind of woman who came afterwards, like a bad sequel with a higher budget. Oh, I feel sorry for the people I love and where it is I am taking them, because I do not think I am good enough. I think it's okay to admit the people you love are better than you. I wouldn't date anyone who wasn't. Imagine dating someone worse than yourself on purpose. That's the kind of fucked up thing only everyone I'd ever love would do. That's almost it for episode three of Bang. But before we wind up, dating apps are far from the only technological influences of young people's sex and love lives. We can probably agree that male pleasure is pretty well catered for online. Well, now there's a website called OMG Yes aiming to balance that out a little. Who better to take us through it than Laura Borrowdale, editor of New Zealand's first erotic literary journal, Aotea Erotica. They bill themselves as caring about women's sexual pleasure and looking at that from a kind of a scientific perspective. So they've gone and interviewed um, and surveyed you know, several thousand women and come up with these patterns that are common across women's experiences. So if you navigate into the website, there's a, a box that you tick to say, yes, you're over 18, and then it will let you look at a trial in which it takes you into one of the techniques that they've identified. They've got about 12. You click into that page and it opens up and it'll describe the technique. It'll have a video clip of a woman or more than one woman in some cases talking about the technique and why that's worked for them. Then you'll have video clips of the woman completely naked in most cases, demonstrating how she does this in a very explicit way, but in a way also that feels very not pornographic. Um, And then, Melody, the fascinating part for me, and I I can't, I still haven't quite got my head around it, um, if you're doing this on a, um, like a smartphone or a tablet, it gives you a virtual vulva that you can then practice that technique 
on. <laughs> just one thing about the app. The woman gives you instructions. So you've just heard her talk about it. You've watched her masturbate. And then you see her vulva and you uh, mimic her masturbation technique. And she tells you if you're doing it right or if you're doing it wrong. She'll say, mm, that feels really good. And then all of a sudden the screen goes blank and goes, well done, you've mastered that technique. And I'm kind of like, but I didn't, I, it, she never comes. It just, um, <laughs> it's like playing a video game, but you win before the boss level every time. So it, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I really wanted this poor app to come. Um, and it just it cut out every time before. And it never, it never did. did. It's interesting going into this podcasts, you know, because I, I frame these discussions as being around something that we don't really like to talk about. And some mm. people will reply and say, well, some people talk about sex all the time. We talk about it, you know, actually a whole lot. But I feel like a lot of the time the discussion just isn't in depth and open. Or and it's focused in one particular way that means that other experiences are missing. I, one of the things I wrote down to talk about with this is that we have a whole cultural backlog of jokes and innuendo and discussions about men masturbating. Young men grow up knowing that that's tolerated and kind of joked about. But young women don't have any version of that at all. So we can talk about masturbation all the time, but generally it's something you do if you've got a penis in your hand. And that penis is yours, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I thought one of the really big positives about this is that women's experiences get validated. That sense of oh, this is the weird thing that I like to do and I don't know if anybody else does it because we never talk about this. Suddenly you see, oh, actually all these other people do it too. And I I wanted to talk just briefly about this Tumblr account that a friend of mine showed me. It's called Genitals Anxiety. And it is literally what it sounds like. It's people who are worried about their genitals. And in this case, almost exclusively their vulva. And they post pictures and then write their feelings about it underneath. And then you get all these comments of people coming in and saying compliments about about their vulva. This website actually, um, with Genitals Anxiety, but also OMG Yes, have very explicit imagery of vulva. And th- that's a really validating thing too, I think. Women don't don't get to see that and don't get to understand that in the same way the rest of our bodies come in all different shapes and sizes so do our genitals and that it's normal to look however you look. And of course a really serious side effect of not knowing about that variation is this increase that we're seeing in female genital cosmetic surgery. Yeah, labiaplasty. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's because pornography presents us with this very sanitised version of what that's supposed to look like. I looked at the website alone and I looked at it with someone also and I thought it was arousing to be on the website, but not because of what you were necessarily seeing, but because of, it was making you think about what does that woman do? How would that make me feel if I were to do that to myself? And and that's what was probably exciting, in my opinion, about it. Can you illuminate us on one or two of the techniques? They're not an instruction for what to do. They're a suggestion, and often they're a very broad suggestion. So... Things it sounds silly, but like it sounds it's, um, difficult to you, to put into practice. Well, it was it, it, so one of them, for instance, is consistency, which they describe as don't stop doing that one thing. Another technique, for instance, was signalling ways to give feedback to your partner, the way that they might 
verbalise it or mm. how they they groan or make suggestions. It's pretty much common sense. What comes um, to mind for me, though, is if, if we live at a time when sex education is potentially being replaced by mm. pornography, where individuals are p- perhaps reenacting things they've seen and not mm. that in tune with those kinds of signals, then maybe reading something like that would would be necessary or important. Yeah, I um, I... I found myself describing it as not sex ed, but kind of pleasure ed. It is how to how to pleasure, and I guess it's reinforcing that the pleasure isn't just physical, and that there are these components to it, like talking to your partner. Or there's another thing they talk about framing, and that was one I actually found really interesting. It wasn't a technique about masturbating at all, but it was talking about how, particularly for women, we get inside our heads. And sex and orgasms are often really intertwined with what's going on in your brain at that time and are interfered with by what's going on in your brain. So you start to doubt yourself or you start to worry about what your partner's thinking. Or Mm. Once you know that other people feel that same way and it's quite a normal thing, you can let go of it a bit more. When you talk about that kind of thing as well, it also, one of the side effects of a, a website like this seems to be that it gives people the vocabulary that they need to have conversations about what they enjoy? Yeah, that was, for me, the best part about it. I looked through it and, and then I watched it with somebody else and it was really liberating to be able to say, that that thing she's talking about now, that's something that works for me. Or to disagree, like, that thing she's doing now, don't do not do Don't that. ever do that's that. That's not, not going to work. <laughs> but it was interesting to watch that with someone and I think that that would be the best end, end point user for this, I think is a couple who are trying to um, work through this together mm. to, to be able to enable that discussion. If, if you have to summarise your overall grade or review for OMG Yes, what would you say? I would say it's a really, or for people who don't have confidence, it um, in a socially acceptable way packages that up for them so that they can access that material. Yeah, I'd, I'd give it an A for beginners. That's it for this episode of Bang. If this has raised any questions for you, we can put them to Auckland University's Pani Farvid on your behalf. Her work examines the intersection of gender, sexuality, power, culture, technology and identity. So download the RNZ Vox Pop app and ask away. We'll be live at 8.30 on Wednesday, August 16th, getting through as many questions as we can. You can also email bang at radionz.co.nz with any other feedback. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe by going to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Do rate and review us if you get a moment. And we're also really easy to find on the new RNZ app, which you can download for free from the App Store. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, with special assistance from Marcus Stickley, engineered by William Saunders, and the executive producer was Tim Watkin. Next time we explore the ways intimacy changes over the course of long-term relationships.